Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest today is Eric Tietzel. He is the Executive Director of the Manhattan Declaration. Eric, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thanks very much. Now, among other things, uh, we want to talk about the Manhattan Declaration today, but before we get to that, I want to refer to a brand new book that you have written with our friend Andrew Walker entitled simply Marriage Is, How Marriage Transforms Society and Cultivates Human Flourishing. Uh, we did an interview with Andrew on the Beeson podcast, but I wanted to get your perspective on this book as well. Kind of what is it? Why did you write it? And how can people get a copy of it? Well, thanks very much for the plug and the opportunity to talk about it uh, real briefly. You know, Andrew and I are both uh, relatively young, part of the millennial generation. And I think we're both um, people who, in just the last few years, have learned a lot about what marriage is and why marriage matters, um, particularly in the course of our everyday work, which touches on these issues. And um, as two young men, both of whom were raised in the church as Christians, and yet somehow were never taught the um, deeper, broader um, theological and social significance of marriage until we started doing this professionally, we thought, um, it's no wonder that most Christians today don't get this stuff and are sort of easily persuaded by uh, current cultural tides. And even more so, it's no surprise that those who, who don't have a deep faith background are so easily swayed by new ideas about what marriage is and what the family is. So we wanted to write a book that brought together basically everything we've learned from the theology to the history to the biology to the philosophy in one place so that it was easy to read and very accessible for, for non-experts. And, um, and that's what our book is. Yeah, it's a wonderful attempt. I, I want to press you a little bit on why you think it is that uh, there is such a, a loose or even um, uh, evanescent understanding of marriage in the life of the church. Is it we just haven't talked about it? We've just assumed it for so long? And then, of course, marriage has been under attack for a long time from many other factors other than the question of uh same-sex marriage that we're debating in, in this moment in history. Talk about why yeah. the church has let dropped the ball on this one. Mm. I think there are a few different reasons. Um, the, the primary reason is probably just that um, Christians have taken for granted that people knew what marriage was and why it mattered. Um, and so they haven't invested uh, in educating generation after generation to, to ensure that they really truly do understand uh, the significance. And that, and that has allowed a broader, uh, more, uh, uh, shallow understanding of marriage as just, just sort of the physical, uh, relational manifestation of romantic love to permeate into the church as well, such that, uh, there's really no daylight between the concept of marriage that a young Christian would have, uh, and the concept that they're, um, uh, unchurched uh, peer at school might have. It's all about finding that one special person and bending your life together. Um, the other reason, I think, is that as we started to wake up to um, the reality and force of the threats 
to marriage, uh, particularly with regard to same-sex marriage. So threats to marriage have been going on for many years prior to the onset of the same-sex marriage revolution. But as this particular instance started to creep up and gain speed and power, many churches simply abdicated their responsibility to speak truthfully and prophetically about what the Bible has to say about this issue, um, whether it was because of fear or because of a uh, of, a, of an inability uh, based on on the ignorance that I just described. Whatever the reason, we really just have not uh, taken it upon ourselves to be salt and light when it comes to the gospel ramifications for marriage. And uh, that's where the Manhattan Declaration is relevant. You and I know a lot about the Manhattan Declaration, but there may be listeners who really have never read it or even heard of it. I don't think many, I hope, but uh, perhaps some. Say a little bit about the Manhattan Declaration itself, what it is, uh, how it came to be, and um, how people could find out more about it. Yeah, When I first read and signed the Manhattan Declaration way back in 2009, before I ever came to work um, uh, for it, I understood it as a wake-up call to the church, to be the church when it comes to the most important issues of our time. You know, there are a whole range of issues to which the Bible speaks, the, the moral principles of Scripture as outlined by Jesus and the full testimony of, of the Scriptures apply in almost every sphere of our lives, and we need to take that seriously. But there are a few issues that take supremacy when it comes to sort of a triage of those things that we need to spend the majority of our time on. And that's because they're foundational. Um, these are the issues of life, and that's uh, certainly going to include abortion, but really any issue that gets at the inherent dignity of every human being as a, as a being created in the image of God. That's going to touch on our understanding, not just of, of when life begins in the womb, but also on when life should end and whether or not um, we should be allowing people to put themselves to death, for example, or, or putting people to death because they become feeble or some of the other ethical issues that have arisen and are going to continue to arise in the years to come. And there are many, many others. The second is marriage, which we were just talking about. Um, marriage is the first and most basic institution of society. When a man and a woman come together, they become a husband and a wife soon to be a mother and a father to any children that they might have. That's the system that God ordained, and he did it for both theological, spiritual reasons, but also for very practical, social reasons. God asked us to fill the earth and multiply, and he knew that if we were going to fulfill that mandate, we were going to need to get organized. We're going to have to have some systems in place to ensure that human beings were able to live together in peace and harmony and to thrive. And the system he created to do that starts with the family, where parents teach their kids how to be, how to think, how to live, so that they can be fruitful and uh, contributing members of society before they start having their own children, and on and on we go. And finally, the Manhattan Declaration speaks to the issue of religious liberty, which has increasingly been of national conversation as uh, the LGBT activist movement has, um, I think quite rightly, regarded the opinions of believers, especially Christian believers, but not uh, not only Christian believers, as the biggest threat to uh, their ability to achieve their political goals. Um, religious liberty is the foundation of 
all of our civil liberties. Religion is the thing that causes people to ask the big questions of life. Who am I? Why am I on this earth? Why does it matter? And then it's the thing that causes people to conform the patterns of their lives to the answers they find to those big questions of, of existence and of meaning. Anytime an outside entity can interfere in that, can say, no, you either don't have the right to ask those big existential questions, or you do, but you don't have the right to live in accord with the answers that you've found, that thing becomes your God, because it's the most powerful thing in your life. And if that thing can keep you from doing those most fundamental things, well, what in the world to stop it from uh, uh, keeping you from writing what you want or saying what you want or going to a meeting with the people that you want or any of the other basic liberties that Americans currently enjoy. So as we all know, the United States Supreme Court uh, just several weeks ago declared same-sex marriage to be the law of the land. Uh, how does that uh, impact your work with the Manhattan Declaration and our joint witness, all of the nearly 600,000, I think, now who've signed the Manhattan Declaration? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, it was it – was, uh, certainly uh, a point in history. Um, it was a, a punctuation mark um, in many ways uh, that's going to be pivotal as we look back on this a generation or two from now. Um, my hope is that this provides an opportunity. So it was a terrible decision, mm. not just for people who care about what marriage is, but for all freedom-loving Americans who understand that we don't want courts to have the power to redefine words. And even if we did, we don't want courts to have the power to overwhelm the democratic process through which citizens voting in their states might exercise the power to change the meaning of a word. If we're going to do a bad thing, let's at least do it yeah. in a democratic way, right? Um, nevertheless, this is where we are. And I think it provides an opportunity for us to shift our focus and priorities. For a long time, we've been talking about the Supreme Court and necessarily so. Um, in fact, if the Supreme Court had ruled the other way, we'd be talking about legislative fights and ballot initiatives at the state level because the LGBT movement would be fighting to get what they've now received from the court. This stops all of that. That's bad for democracy. But for people who understand what marriage is, now we get to start doing the next thing, which is rebuilding from the foundations a culture that truly understands what marriage is and why it matters. Now, Eric, you are you are a, a very young man, at least by my my reckoning. I think you're what thirty one or so. Yes, sir. Well, uh, when we hired you to be the executive director of the Manhattan Declaration, we didn't do it just because you were young. You're, as we can tell from this interview, extremely bright, articulate, passionate about these things that matter ultimately uh, in our life together. Uh, but you are still young. And so I, I wonder if you will address the generational question, uh, particularly on the question of marriage. When we think about sanctity of life, concern for abortion on demand, it seems that more and more young people, at least the trend is toward a greater respect for life. But the trend seems to go the other way, according to the polls anyway, about the question of marriage. Uh, say a little bit about the generational issue and, and what those committed to both life and marriage as well as freedom uh, can actually communicate about that to a new generation. Yeah, it's a great question, and I'm happy to speak to it um, as best I can. You know, I think you're exactly right about the trend lines with regard to life. 
Um, I've heard it said, and I've seen some polling that shows that at the time of the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, majority of Americans were in favor of it. Um, that, it turns out, was the most pro-abortion that Americans ever became. Mm. Trends changed. And today, my generation is more pro-life than any prior generation since, well, at least since Roe. Um, my hope is that that same dynamic will prove to be true when it comes to marriage and for many of the same reasons. Trend lines are only true until they're not true anymore. And the great error that people make is to assume that because there's a trajectory, it's going to continue along that path. Politicians and pundits are making that mistake right now, every day, all the time. But it's incumbent on people like us, those of us who understand the truth about what marriage is and are willing to get our hands dirty by doing the hard work to win hearts and minds back over, they come in on us to make sure that we change those trends. And it's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take work in a number of different tiers. You know, we can't just be making philosophical or even theological arguments. What worked so well for the pro-life movement over the course of a generation was to have a multifaceted approach. They used apologetics. They used philosophy. They used theology. But they also used 3D sonograms when they became available, and they used biology. These are the same tools that we're going to need to use, and it's going to be difficult. One of the areas that does give me some concern is that with abortion, it became easier and easier for us to identify the victim. It became harder and harder for folks to look at a sonogram of uh, a heart beating at 12 weeks or 20 weeks and to see a fully formed human being and say, that's not a person, that's just a clump of cells that can be eliminated without any concern. No, when you can look at it and see it and see it moving and waving and a heart beating, you can't deny the power of that. When it comes to same-sex marriage, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to identify the victim. Um, in fact, the power of the same-sex marriage movement has relied on the, um, uh, the power of, of relationships with our friends and loved ones who experience same-sex attraction and desire these things. It's really difficult to hear them appealing for something and to say no, because relationships matter and the people matter. Um, what we need to keep in mind as Christians is that um, sin, ultimately, is not bad simply because God says it's bad. God says it's bad, and it has negative ramifications for us. It harms us. It literally kills us. And so if we love our gay friends and neighbors and family members, the best thing that we can do is to point them towards truth, towards the gospel, and to help in every way to put them back on the narrow road righteousness. You know, my friend Russell Moore uh, has talked about the church in this particular moment becoming kind of a haven for those who are the victims of the sexuality revolution that we see all around us. Increasingly, uh, they're likely to be more in that number. And so it's important for the church to be there, to be the church, to be faithful to Christ and the scriptures and the gospel, and to do so in a way that is compassionate and winsome. And that's really, I think, uh, also a wake-up call for the church. We haven't always done that and been that. 
And so, as you say, this is a moment of, of grave danger in some ways, but also tremendous opportunity for believers in Christ. Amen. I think that's right. Well, I've been talking today to uh, my friend Eric Tietzel. He's the executive director of the Manhattan Declaration. This is a call to Christian conscience that was initiated by the late Charles W. Colson in 2009 and has been signed by hundreds of thousands of Catholics, Orthodox believers, and Protestants, evangelicals of many different denominations. Uh, Eric, tell us how people could get in touch with the Manhattan Declaration and even go and sign it if they would. Well, the best way to do that is to go to the website, which is uh, manhattandeclaration.org. Uh, it's a very simple, easy-to-use website. Um, you can click through just a few pages and find where to sign, where to read the, the Declaration, how to share it with other folks. Of course, we're also on Facebook. Uh, just look up the Manhattan Declaration. And uh, we're on Twitter. Uh, if you uh, are a tweet, uh, you can find the Manhattan Declaration at Manhattan Deck, and you can also find me at Eric Tietzel for uh, some more regular commentary. And uh, I must admit, I also tweet a lot about baseball. So, uh, <laughs> that's okay. That's my favorite sport, too. <laughs> so Eric Tietzel is the director of the Manhattan Declaration. He is also, with Andrew Walker, the author of A Fine Brand new book, Marriage Is. Just those two words, Marriage Is. And as we leave, tell us how we can get that book, Eric. Uh, best way is Amazon.com. You can look up uh, my name, Andrew's name, or look up Marriages, and, and you'll be able to find it there. Thank you, Eric, for your commitment to these issues, your faithful Christian witness. Uh, may the Lord bless and strengthen you in all that you're doing in this, in this very important frontier. Well, thanks very much. Uh, thanks to your whole team. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.